So the first noble truth can be looked at in many ways. It can be divided into six sufferings, or eight sufferings, or three types of dukkha. When looked at through this third division, we can not be satisfied with recognizing the dukkha of pain or even the dukkha of change. We need to recognize the dukkha of pervasive conditioning. And this refers to our aggregates, which are under the influence of disturbing attitudes and karma, the truth that we are controlled by karma and afflictions. We are not self-made or self-controlled, but are under the power of these causes and conditions. We are conditioned beings, and the afflictions and karma are also conditioned. And recognizing this is key to developing the determination to be free. But developing the the determination to be free for ourselves is not enough. All sentient beings, just like me, want to be happy and free of suffering. In this basic way, in this shared basic motivation, we are all the same. We are also all the same in having Buddha nature, the potential to become fully enlightened Buddhas, free of all suffering. And we've all been cycling in samsara since beginningless time, and we've had countless lives. Birth, aging, sickness, and death over and over and over again, countless times. And during these countless lives, we have been in relation to each and every sentient being. Each has been our dearest friend and also our worst enemy countless times. Friend, enemy, and stranger, everyone has been each of these in relation to us and to each other. And no one is fixed in any one of these categories. An enemy in this life has been a friend in our other lives and has been kind and helpful. A friend in this life has been an enemy in other lives and has been cruel and harmful. And strangers in this life have been our friends and enemies in other lives. Our friends and enemies have been strangers in other lives. Each being has been kind to us and helped us, and each being has been cruel to us and harmful. Throughout it all, the harm is greatly outweighed by the kindness. We are so dependent on other living beings for everything, for the things we've learned, for the things we have, for even surviving infancy and for being able to survive now. Others have shown kindness to us in taking care of us. So throughout it all, all the harm is greatly outweighed by the kindness. Each being has been our mother countless times. Countless times they have given birth to us, fed us, and protected us, and done all the many, many things that mothers do to take care of their young ones. They have each gone, undergone hardships in order to spare us hardships. They have each gone hungry to make sure that we had enough food to eat. They have risked their lives to protect our lives with no thought for themselves, and even lost their lives to protect our lives. And this is what mothers do. Not just human mothers. Animal mothers will uh, attack a predator in order to defend their youngs. They're young, and sometimes they die doing this. So think of this. 
each and every sentient being, without exception, has cared for us so much that they have even at some point given their life for us. There is not one sentient being you could say this is not true of. And they have been so dear to us that we have done the same for them. We are all very closely related in the context of beginningless time. We have all been dear family. Think of this and let a feeling of love for all sentient beings arise. Leave no being out, no matter what their behavior or attitude in this life. When we think of the first noble truth, we should think of it not only in relation to ourselves, but in relation to all these dear ones. All sentient beings are suffering birth, aging, sickness, and death over and over and over again. We all suffer under the power of afflictions and karma, driven by these causes and conditions, pushed by them into more suffering. This is the state of all sentient beings. If my family and I were in a burning house, I wouldn't just get myself out. I would make sure to get every last person out of the house. In the same way, think that all sentient beings are trapped in samsara and make a determination to do everything you can to get them free. And this is an, an immense determination and overwhelming responsibility. How could I ever do this? Who has the ability to do this? Who has the ability to, to be of the greatest help for sentient beings? The Buddhas have the best possible abilities and qualities to help sentient beings. Thinking in this way, develop the aspiration to become a Buddha in order to gain the best abilities to benefit sentient beings. Develop a determination to become fully awakened for the purpose of leading all sentient beings to full awakening. So with this motivation, let's study a few of Shantideva's verses on developing the fortitude of disregarding the harm done by others. And may this time spent studying these verses contribute greatly towards our enlightenment so that we can actualize our spiritual aspiration to liberate each and every sentient being from the suffering of samsara. So we have been reviewing um, chapter 6, and the section we'll review today starts with verse 22. And we'll see how, how far we get, but I'd like to get to verse 34. Um, those 13 verses really cover the same topic. Lama Zopa Rinpoche groups these into a larger section dealing with um, overcoming the wish to retaliate. And so I'm going to do this in three sections. I'm going to read the verses 
and then go through them one by one. And throughout, I will be um, referring to the teachings that Venerable gave on this. And um, I will be doing some quotes from her, and I'll also be wording some things in my own words. So starting with verse 22. As I do not become angry with great sources of suffering, such as jaundice, then why be angry with animate creatures? They too are provoked by conditions. Although they are not wished for, these sicknesses arise. And likewise, although they are not wished for, these distur disturbing conceptions forcefully arise. Without thinking I shall be angry, people become angry with no resistance. And without thinking I shall produce myself, likewise anger itself is produced. All mistakes that occur and all the various kinds of wrongdoing arise through the force of conditions. They do not govern themselves. These conditions that assemble together have no intention to produce anything, and neither does the product have the intention to be produced. So these verses point out that the behavior of sentient beings and the mental states behind their actions arise due to causes and conditions. They are not in control of themselves. Even their motivation is conditioned by causes and conditions. Thus, responding to them with anger is inappropriate. These verses are about recognizing that there is no independent, self-driven person behind harmful actions and thus abandoning any wish to retaliate. So, with verse 22 again, as I do not become angry with great sources of suffering, such as jaundice, then why be angry with animate creatures? They too are provoked by conditions. And when Venerable Children was teaching this, she taught these verses that I want to cover through three different um, teachings, starting on 22 in the middle of a, of a teaching, it's the 61st teaching of this series, and ending on and finishing 34 in the middle of um, teaching 63. So I'm going to be a lot briefer than her, and I'm going to bring up some quotes that um, that I really think from her that I think are um, really get to the heart of what she was saying and what the verses mean. So here's a quote from her. So here Shanti Deva is talking about how the things that we think make us suffer do not have the intention to make us suffer. They are things that arise. There's merely conditioned events and conditioned people. Diseases come about due to external conditions and animate people, if they do something that's harmful, they are acting under, they're being provoked by conditions. Even if they had the intention to cause harm, even that, they don't have an unconditioned motivation to cause us harm. And verse 23 goes right along with this. Although they are not wished for, these sicknesses arise. And likewise, although they are not wished for, these disturbing conceptions forcefully arise. And here's another quote from Venerable. Many mental states that we don't wish for, 
and that other people do not wish for in themselves arise forcefully even though we do not want them. And even though other people don't want them, what makes them arise? Causes and conditions. It's not under their power, under their choice. And this is a big part of what Shantideva is bringing to mind here is that people are not under their own choice when they do harmful things. And um, he's bringing this up so that we can use this knowledge as a tool to help us overcome the desire to respond with anger. So verse 24, without thinking I shall be angry, people become angry with no resistance. And without thinking I shall produce myself, likewise anger itself is produced. And here I'm going to read a couple paragraphs of what Venerable had said during her teaching. When you've, really, when you've gotten really angry, did you think, I want to get angry? When you've been really jealous, did you think, I'm going to get jealous? No. Why do they arise with no resistance in our mind? The lack of resistance is just habit. We've never learned to look differently at the situation. So in the same way, other people who are angry, other people who are upset, other people who are in a bad mood or projecting junk or whatever it is, their mental state, they did not have the intention to have that mental state. That mental state arose due to its own causes and conditions. So in the same way, as we, didn't get, don't, as we don't get mad at a disease that arose from causes and conditions, not, let's not get angry at other people for their afflictions that arose from causes and conditions. And similarly, let's not get angry at ourselves when our afflictions arise. The anger did not have the intention to arise, nor did its causes and conditions have the intention to arise. We're always looking for someone to blame because we think if they had the intention to harm, then my blaming them is suitable. Shantideva is saying, no, it's not, because they don't really have the intention to harm. They were pushed, pushed by causes and conditions. Even if they did have the intention, did they themselves produce that intention, or was it produced by other, their other afflictions, their distorted way of thinking? What we are getting at is that really in people's hearts, they don't wish to cause harm. They are overwhelmed by their own distorted conceptions, by their own afflictions, and they're pushed by that energy to act out. In the same way, when we're speaking and one part of our mind is saying, shut up, we're being pushed by that previous energy too. End of quote. And Venerable uses the term pushed a lot, that we're pushed by our habits, our energy our karma, our previous actions, um, our afflictions. And so much is just clearly stated in these verses. But do we really understand what it means that we are controlled by causes and conditions? Do we really understand that our mental states are the results of causes and conditions, resulting from other causes and conditions and so on? Do we just think, oh, I had this thought, or this comes to mind, or do we realize this, these thoughts come up from causes and conditions? Um, 
the habit of previous ways of thinking, the habit of not countering thoughts that are not helpful? And do we really understand to what extent sentient beings lack control? So there's a lot in these verses, but we really have to think about them over and over. These are really wonderful tools to help us in how we respond to um, other people's actions. And um, we have to really you look at them and become very familiar with them in order that they become causes and conditions for us to be able to come up with a better response. And um, previously in this chapter, Shantideva talked a bit about um, having the fortitude of dealing with difficulties and hardships. And um, really, that first verse in this section, 22, where it compares a disease and respond, how we respond to it and comparing um, responding to sentient beings is really um, going into this other kind of fortitude as the fortitude of not... Um, not responding negatively to um, to to harm inflicted on us, um, to bearing it without responding in a negative way, and Shanti Deva is really making the connection that just as we don't respond to inanimate objects, why do because we don't we don't respond to them with anger. Why do we respond to um, sentient beings with anger? It's, sentient beings do what sentient beings do. I was reading some, some by um, Lama Zopa Rinpoche, and he said, um, you know, it's causes and conditions coming up. Why do we fight against it? If we saw someone yelling at a waterfall to go the other way, we would not think they were right in the head. But when a being is provoked by causes and conditions, are responding to them like um, with more inappropriate behavior just doesn't really help. And verse 25, all mistakes that are and all the various kinds of evil arise through the force of conditions. They do not govern themselves. And here another short quote from Venerable. This is an important point because it helps us in our understanding of emptiness and our understanding of dependent arising. So to not see people and actions as inherently existent, as if they govern themselves, as if they make themselves happen, and as if they are independent of all other conditions in the world when everything is so interdependent. My cord is. And this is about how to look at things in a way that helps to bring up a more beneficial state of mind on our own part, a state of mind that doesn't respond with anger. And um and, and Venable spoke about how this relates to an appropriate response. So I'm gonna read a little more of what she said. 
Thinking like this doesn't mean you don't hold people accountable. We are responsible for our actions, and other people are responsible for their actions. But the way we hold it is different. We don't hate the person. We don't want to take revenge on the person. You can hold people accountable without hating somebody, without wanting to afflict suffering, without wanting revenge. And we do have some choice in how we condition ourselves. But our having that choice is also conditioned. Our distorted thinking is our responsibility in the sense that we can change, only we can change our distorted way of thinking. There is no independent eye sitting there making all this happen. It's all caused by causes and conditions. Causes and conditions don't mean things are faded and predetermined. Because, because things are produced by causes and conditions, another cause can be generated. Another thought can be generated that would change the whole thing and redirect it in another area. So she's really talking about our practice here, our practice of using what choice we do have to strengthen virtuous habits and resist non-virtuous ones. Um, during one of the teachings that, where she covered this, someone asked a question, and when Venerable um, answered the answer really addressed this, so I wanted to um, read this question and her answer. Can we choose compassion or does it just arise when right thinking? That was the question. And Venable's response was, we have to practice meditation on all the reasons why compassion is something realistic and beneficial. And we have to practice generating compassion. And in that way, compassion will arise. We can't just sit there and say, I'm going to be compassionate. And then incredible compassion arises. We have to create the causes for it. And that's what practicing the path is about. It's about creating the causes for the kinds of mental states and qualities we want to have. It's so hard to understand because we are so used to thinking that there is some independent entity there that makes everything happen. And there's no independent entity. It's just bunches of causes and conditions. So things arise due to causes and conditions, and our practice is also part of that. It arises due to causes and conditions. Um, our, our ability to practice, our having the freedoms and fortunes of this precious human life, these are the result of causes and conditions. And they are also part of the causes and conditions, favorable conditions we are under the power of. When we practice, we create more favorable conditions. And we can we create um, habits for virtue and virtuous mental states to arise. And those vir and we create virtuous karma that will ripen into more favorable conditions and so on. And so yes, we use what control we do have to um, create virtue. We are under the control of previous, previously created causes and conditions, but we have some, some volition here that we can make actions, and every time we have an opportunity to act with virtue, and we do so, we're strengthening that and making more good causes and conditions.
And we read the verses here, and, and they can help contribute to the arising of, of mental states that move the mind away from creating negativity. But none of it exists independently, as Venable said, and there's no independent entity. It's just bunches of causes and conditions. And these verses have so much in them. They're, they're getting out a way of seeing sentient beings that helps us with our mind and our mental state. But they're also they're diving into dependent arising and emptiness. There is no independent entity. It is just a bunch of causes and conditions arising from other causes and conditions, giving rise to more causes and conditions. So verse 26 says, these conditions that assemble together have no intention to produce anything, and neither does their product have the intention to be produced. And when Venerable was um, going over this, she used an example of an inanimate object, uh, this table actually, and she said, did the wood have the intention to arise, to say, I'm going to become a table, or the nails? Um, and maybe we would say, no, the carpenter did. But um, where did the carpenter get the intention? Where did that intention arise from? It arose from causes and conditions. And Shantideva has been working with the example of harm, someone harming us, and with the example of anger, our response in order to change how we see and react to harm from others, to help us overcome the wish to retaliate, to help us develop the fortitude of disregarding the harm done by others. Um, at some point, Venerable offered up a, a false syllogism for us to examine. Here it is. Consider that person. They are unworthy of compassion because they are rude to me. And she said, check it out, make that syllogism. Does it make any sense? And um, the thought, why, why should I have compassion to them? They were rude for me. It makes no sense. They are rude because they are unhappy. Doesn't make that make them an object of compassion, an object worthy of compassion? Is it the case that we are only nice to those who are nice to us, only have compassion to those that are nice to us and see them as worthy of compassion? No, this is, that is biased compassion. When we do the um, meditations to generate compassion, we start with equanimity so that we don't fall into this bias of wanting to benefit those that help us and harm those who harm us so we don't end up with this compassion that's not great compassion, that doesn't include everybody. All beings have been our friends, our enemies, they've been strangers throughout countless lives since beginningless time, and all have harmed us and all have benefited us. And for each and every one, and in general, the harm is greatly outweighed by the benefit. Each being has been dear to us and has taken great care of us. Um, I've known quite a few nurses, and some of them, when they have had to deal with combative patients, um, one was working in, a, in a, a dementia ward, and 
she told me, I got beat up today. I mean, somebody she's trying to hold down and pounded. And one of the younger nurses was very upset. And she told the younger nurse, she's like, they're sick, you know? There's no reason to get mad at them. They have no intention to hurt you. And um, that's exactly what we're talking about here. That we're all under the power of causes and conditions. And when somebody's getting angry and upset, It's not like they wanted to have this intention to harm us come up. Um, they're under the power they're cause of wrong thinking, afflictions, karma, habits, all these things. And so we don't need to take it personal. And of course, it's, you know, it's easier to say that than it is to do that. But in order to practice that, we need to familiarize ourselves with this. And when someone is overwhelmed by their afflictions, we can, if, we are, if we've trained our minds, we can see they are suffering and then respond with compassion. In, in a previous verse in this chapter, um, verse 7, Shanti Deva mentioned the connection with um, unhappiness and suffering. I'm going to read that verse having found its fuel of mental unhappiness in the prevention of what I wish for and in doing what I do not want, hatred increases and then destroys me. And those that harm us who are acting out of anger and maliciousness, they're suffering. They are suffering under the control of afflictions, under the control of causes and conditions. And um, these verses, 22 to 26, have been making very clear they haven't intentionally given rise to this negative mental state. They haven't, under their own control, given rise to non-virtuous motivation. All this has arisen due to causes and conditions. It's all conditioned phenomena. And, um, and we sentient beings tend to, at least ordinary beings who haven't realized emptiness, we tend to look at things as being solid. We don't tend to see that they're conditioned things. And so um, Shantideva has been really looking at emptiness in these verses as a reason why anger is inappropriate. These verses we just went over have um, led up to this, to asserting causal dependency and the lack of any controller to these causes and conditions. So we've been looking at trying to see how things actually do function. Now these next um, four verses, we look at the reality that things can't be permanent or inherently existent, existent or they wouldn't be able to function. We kind of look at, we're looking at wrong views that we may be holding and seeing that they're not tenable. They couldn't, things couldn't be that way. So I'm going to read these next verses, 27 to 30, and then I'll go through them um, individually. That which is asserted as primal substance and that which is imputed as a self, since they are unproduced, do not arise after having purposefully thought, I shall arise in order to cause harm. If they are unproduced and non-existent, then whatever wish they have to produce harm will also not exist. 
Since this self would permanently apprehend its object, it follows that it would never cease to do so. Furthermore, if the self were permanent, it would clearly be devoid of action like space. So even if it met with other conditions, how could its unchanging nature be affected? Even if when acted upon by other conditions, it remains as before, then what could actions do to it? Thus, if I say this condition acts upon a permanent self, how could the, ever, the two ever be causally related? So this verse, this verse 27, that which is asserted as a primal substance and that which is imputed as a self, since they are unproduced, do not arise after having purposely, purposefully thought, I shall arise in order to cause harm. And um, Shantideva starts verse 27, um, referring to a Samkhya view of uh, a primal substance, um, an underlying material cause, and the nature of all objective phenomena. That's phenomena. That's their view. And um, from a, view, a Buddhist point of view, this doesn't work because everything that is a cause is also an effect. And thus, nothing arises by itself. A one unconditioned cause, like the primal substance, does not give rise to everything since only conditioned phenomena can cause effects. If all things were in nature, this primal substance, then when a sprout arose from a seed, it would be arising from its own nature. It would be the primal substance giving rise to itself. Things cannot arise from themselves because for an effect to be produced, its cause must cease. The two cannot be simultaneous and functioning things arise from causes and conditions. So if the self were an unconditioned, inherently existent phenomena, it too could not produce or be produced. Seeing that something that is permanent is fixed, it cannot change. And change is required in order to produce a result. And I'm not going to go deep into the Samkhya view of things, but um, in these verses, Shantideva is drawing out the general reasoning also that something permanent cannot be a cause neither a permanent um, primal substance or a permanent self or a, or a permanent creator deity, for that matter, can, um, can create because it involves change and being permanent, they cannot change. And even if they did exist, they would be unable to produce the thought, I shall arise in order to cause harm. They would, in fact, be unable to perform any action as action involves change. In verse 28, he says, if they are unproduced and non-existent, then whatever wish they have to produce harm will also not exist. Since this self would be permanent, since this self would permanently apprehend its object, it follows that it would never cease to do so. If something permanent were performing an action, it would always be performing that action. And if it were not performing an action, it could never perform an action. 
This is because going from performing in action to not performing in action involves change. And likewise, going from not performing in action to performing in action involves change. And something that is permanent, being permanent means it doesn't change. It can't change. It's static. It can't, and it can't go from being permanent to being impermanent either, because that would involve a permanent phenomena changing, which is contradictory. A permanent phenomena is something that just doesn't change. And because of that, it cannot act. Um, and this continues with verse 29. Furthermore, if the self were permanent, it would clearly be devoid of action, just like space. So even if it met with other conditions, how could its unchanging nature be affected? So furthermore, a permanent phenomena couldn't perform an action at all. It couldn't be performing an action or not. It, and change to performing it. It just couldn't perform an action. It's not tenable. To perform an action involves change. And any of the actions that functioning things do involve change. Going from one thought to another involves change. Moving the body from one position to another involves change. And permanent things can't do this. They cannot perform, perform functions because they cannot change. The self cannot be permanent or it wouldn't be able to function. We can't say that a permanent thing is responsible for an action because a permanent thing can't change. We cannot say that a harmful action or intention behind that action arose from a permanent self. This is just not possible. And this is being gone through to show us to not look at a person that's harming us as, as if they are permanent and unchanging. They wouldn't be performing an action if they were permanent. And not to see ourselves that way. When we see ourselves as permanent, inherently existent. We see ourselves as very important. And um, then we're very likely to take things personal that have, that really don't have a lot to do with us. Or if they do, it's, you know, if someone's responding negatively and saying negative things to me, um, that has a lot to do with the causes and conditions that are arising in their mind and less to do with me. And I shouldn't hold so tightly to me and my view of myself. Um, and then continuing with verse 30, even if when acted upon by other conditions, it remains as before, then what could actions do to it? Thus, if I say that this condition acts upon a permanent self, how could the two ever be causally related? I saw another translation of this verse, and it, it said, um, if a condition and a permanent self came together, what part, part of the effect could a permanent self actually contribute to it? <laughs> because... The per, if the self were permanent, it wouldn't be contributing it at all. 
Um, so what Shantideva is getting at here is that for a cause to give rise to an effect, it must meet with necessary conditions. Never does something arise from one cause without other conditions involved. For example, a seed. If I want a barley seed to sprout, I have to give it the right conditions. I have to moisten it and um, keep it in the right temperature range. And if I want to keep it from sprouting, I keep it dry and keep it in a cool place and not let it meet with those conditions. It's never the case that something arises from one cause without conditions, or you wouldn't be able to keep a barley sprout. It would just sprout as soon as it was a barley seed. Something that is permanent cannot be affected by anything else. It cannot be changed the way a barley seed is affected by water. A permanent phenomena cannot interact with other, perm with other phenomena, phenomena in that way because that would involve change. And here I have a, another quote from Venerable from when she taught on this. A permanent self can't do anything. A permanent self cannot act nor can it be acted upon. Rather than abstract, abstractly refuting others' beliefs, we should look closely at the beliefs we are refu being refuted and see what part of those we hold ourselves. Do I feel like there is a permanent me? Is that what makes a decision when we decide to get another bowl of ice cream or decide to tell someone off? Something that is permanent cannot function to make decisions. So we, um, yeah, we need to look at our own beliefs. She had mentioned in, in one of the teachings that um, the Buddhists don't refute non-Buddhist um, beliefs because they have something against the non-Buddhists, nor do they refute, do one, does one school refute another school's beliefs because they want to be the right one. Um, they're, they're doing it to steer them to the right view. And we study this stuff so that we can recognize these wrong views in our own minds and, and get, a, um, get a handle on them. And they're there. They're there. So if we don't recognize them, we're not going to get a handle on them unless someone has realized emptiness, then they have the ignorance that sees things in an opposite way. And so we need to really look at this. And this applies to others. Looking at this in the context of the topic of overcoming the wish to retaliate, we need to see there is no permanent, unchanging self causing us harm. There is no unconditioned, permanent entity um, unaffected by causes and conditions that does an action. As was clearly expressed in verses 22 to 26, there's only a network of causes and conditions, giving rise to more causes and conditions, on and on. Who is causing harm? And who is being caused harm? There is no inherently existent harmer, no inherently existent person being harmed, and um, no inherently existent harm or action of harming. These things exist conventionally by being merely labeled and functioned. And that, 
function being merely labeled, and they do function. And if they were inherently existent, they could not function. So this is just another angle to um, be looking at the, um, the actions of someone that harms us with in order to be able to try and steer our mind away from wanting this wish to retaliate. And so I'm going to read through chapter, verses 31 to 34, and then go over them individually. Hence, everything is governed by other factors, which in turn are governed by others. And in this way, nothing governs itself. Having understood this, I should not become angry with phenomena which are like apparition, apparitions. If everything is on, and then this next verse, 32, the first two lines are, um, they're stated as an objection. And then the, the next two lines are Shanti Deva addressing that objection. If everything is unreal like an apparition, then who is there to restrain what anger? Surely in this case, restraint would be inappropriate. And Shanti Deva replies, it would not be inappropriate because conventionally I must maintain that in dependence upon restraining anger, the stream of suffering is severed. So when one sees an enemy or even a friend committing an improper action, by thinking that such things arise from conditions, I shall remain in a happy frame of mind. If things were brought into being by choice, then since no one wishes to suffer, suffering would not occur to any embodied creature. So here, verse 31, I'll read again. Hence, everything is governed by other factors, which in turn are governed by others. And in this way, nothing governs itself. Having understood this, I should not become angry with phenomena that are like apparitions. Everything that was produced was produced by other, prod other produced phenomena which in turn were also produced by other products, and so on and so on. And there's a great tapestry of interconnectedness. And um, here's a short quote from Venerable. Apparitions appear, but there's nothing there. So we may have the feeling of a permanent self, but there's nothing there. The point here is to look at how we look at causality. And um, going on with verse 32, if everything is unreal like an apparition, then who is there to restrain what anger? Surely in this case, restraint would be inappropriate. It would not be inappropriate because conventionally I must maintain that in dependence upon restraining anger, the stream of suffering is severed. And I'm going to read a long quote from Venerable's teaching here. If I say that it is not possible to restrain my anger because there is no independent agent who will do it, then there is no way to attain liberation because my anger creates suffering and there's no way to stop the anger. So there's no way to stop the suffering and no way to get out of samsara. There is a way to restrain our anger even though there is no identifiable person, independent person, permanent person who is restraining the anger. In fact, 
if there were a permanent, independent, inherently existent person that we say restrains the anger, that person would be unable to restrain anger because something that is inherently existent does not depend on any other factor. And to go from being angry to restraining anger entails change. And to, to change means it's got to be influenced by other factors, other conditions. What this does is bring up a whole different way of thinking of the self and feeling the self. And it's kind of uncomfortable because if I ask you, do you feel like you exist only because the causes for you exist? Is that your feeling of self? That I exist only because of the, the causes for me existed? No. Actually, if our eyes are open, if our mind is open, moment by moment, we are changing. Who we are is changing. We're being influenced by everything, every small perception, every small thing, idea, feeling that floats through the mind. All these things are influencing us. And all these things don't say, oh, I'm going to influence this person. All these things arise due to other causes and conditions, and there's no one in charge of the whole thing. It's all just causes and conditions coming together. There's nothing you can pinpoint and control. And if that leaves you feeling a little bit weird, that's good, because it's shaking our idea of an independent self. And we want that idea shaken, because that idea of an inherent independent self is the root of all our problems. And I remember when I remember when Venerable taught this and this bit about um, do you feel like you existed only because the causes for you existed? That really stuck with me thinking about that. And sometimes I bring that to mind when I'm just briefly thinking about emptiness. So there is a point being made with this verse that although things don't exist inherently, they do exist and they function. Not existing inherently and not existing at all are different. We can't conflate these two things, confuse them. And this also points out that although we are controlled by causes and conditions, things are not predestined. We do have some volition, some agency, but this too is a conditioned phenomena. As Venerable said in answering the question about how compassion arises, we can't just sit there and say, I'm going to be compassionate, and then incredible compassion arises. We have to create the causes for it, and that's what practicing the path is about. It's about creating the causes for the kinds of mental states and qualities that we want to have. And in this verse, Shantideva says, I must maintain that in dependence upon restraining anger, the stream of suffering is severed. So our actions matter. They're not inherently existent, but they matter. Our practice matters. We have the causes and conditions to learn to restrain our anger. We can't just say, I will restrain my anger and expect to be able to do so. We need to learn about the disadvantages of anger, the advantages of restraining it, ways to look at situations that help us to restrain our anger. We need to learn about this topic, 
reflect on it, meditate on it, and bring what we learn into our behavior. And the more we do this, the more we are creating the causes and conditions that help us to restrain our anger, for being able to restrain our anger. And the more we go the other way, letting ourselves get angry with no restraint, thinking of others in a negative, unhelpful way, and looking at ourselves as inherently existent and inherently important, the more we're creating the causes and conditions that make it hard for us to restrain our anger. These, when we, I don't know if there's anybody here that never gets angry, but I know sometimes things come up and it's hard for me to restrain my anger. And there's certain um, causes and conditions in my mental continuum that I need to address that are making that difficult. And this is where when we study, we need to take that to the cushion and really look at it and then really put that into practice. And if we haven't studied, we don't have that to take to the cushion when we meditate. And if we haven't meditated on it and thought about it, we're not going to have it in our toolkit when the situation comes up. So I'm going to go on with verse 33. So when seeing an enemy or even a friend committing an improper action, by thinking that such things arise from conditions, I shall remain in a happy frame of mind. And again, I'm going to recite, I'm going to quote something from Venerable's teaching here. So we get unhappy when we see somebody acting inappropriately because we think they have quite an independent intention that they thought of by themselves to harm. But actually what's going on is they are being pushed by their past habits by various mental states and mental factors coming together. So everything that's going on depends on conditions. Do you ever do things and wonder, why am I doing this? Oh, I was taught this as a child. It's just previous conditioning, that's all. And our responses are just habits. A habit is not just one solid thing. Can you identify a habit independent of, in, independent of anything else? A habit is just a name that we give to a bunch of different behaviors that have a little bit in common, and none of it is you. When you think like this, it loosens things up in your mind. When you train yourself to think like this, your mind becomes so much more relaxed. Venerable is so wise. Um, so in this verse, Shantideva is telling us to use the previous verses, all the verses in this book, to condition our, how we look at situations and to take them to our practice. But he's using these previous verses, this verse to telling us to use the previous verses to condition how we look at situations so that we have a mental state that is not conducive to anger. This is how we put these verses into practice. We use them to look at situations in a way that benefits our mind, that steers our mind towards virtue. And using these verses in this way, they become part of the causes and conditions to help us restrain our anger. Or we could just say to restrain anger. Is it our anger? Is there any, does it really belong to anybody? 
and I'm going to read verse 34 here. If things were brought into choice, if things were, were brought into being by choice, then since no one wishes to suffer, suffering would not occur to any embodied being, any, any embodied creature. And so regarding this, Venerable said, so if we are independent people and can choose anything without being influenced by any other factors, then why are we suffering? It wouldn't make any sense, would it? We should be able to control the suffering and not, to, and not put ourselves in situations that make us miserable. Not only in this life, but the karma we created in previous lives. Do you think living beings are rational and make rational choices? And she went on quite a bit to talk about people's irrational behavior. <laughs> yeah. So this verse has us look at the fallacy of any view that doesn't recognize that sentient beings are under the control of causes and conditions. Any view that thinks they are in control of themselves. Being under the control of causes and conditions. This is the suffering of conditionality, the suffering of being conditioned by karma and afflictions. We all want to be happy and free of suffering, and yet we continue to do things that cause us suffering. The thought to do something rises due to causes and conditions. Our intention, whether virtuous, non-virtuous, or neutral, arises due to causes and conditions. It's a conditioned phenomena. Sentient beings are not free to choose anything they wish. We have some choice, but it is limited by causes and conditions. It is a conditioned phenomena. And this is the case when someone is causing harm. They are, as Venerable said over and over, pushed, pushed by their habits, pushed by their various mental states and mental factors, pushed by all these things coming together. And they are suffering. They are suffering. Sentient beings are suffering. And an appropriate response to that, a helpful response, is compassion. Helpful to us, helpful to them, helpful to the situation. Anger is not an appropriate response, nor is it helpful. And we may respond compassionately to someone that's angry, and that might not stop them from being angry. That's not really the point. I mean, sometimes it will help. It will change the situation. But it helps us from going to that same mental state of anger. And um, it helps us from making the situation worse. In one teaching, Venerable led a meditation on this, how to really bring this into our minds. And I'm going to lead that same meditation. I thought that would be a great way to review this, to go through this same meditation. So bring to mind a situation recently where you became angry or irritated or upset and then recall how you responded to that situation, what you said and did in response.
Now investigate what were the causes and conditions that led you to respond in that way. Don't focus so much on the external factors in the situation, but more on internal things. What were the conditions in your mind that made certain thoughts arise and made certain emotions arise, that made certain motivations for actions arise? And in that way, see how all these things depend on multiple conditions. And when you locate a condition, what was the condition for that condition? If while investigating this, there is the thought that I decided to act that way, then ask yourself, who is that I that made the decision to act that way? And why did that I decide to act in that way? What are the conditions? Now think of when another person was upset or angry or irritated with you. 
and do the same kind of analysis. What causes and conditions might have been in their mind that made them act in the same, in that way? And again, trace those preconceptions and thoughts back to other causes and conditions. And then from this, draw the conclusion that things arise due to causes and conditions, and that you can't pinpoint an independent person that is controlling the whole process. And in that case, who is there to be upset with? Or who is there to react to others' provocations? So as I said before, practicing these, this um, kind of fortitude can be difficult sometimes. Um, sometimes we may respond with anger to someone else because we're afraid and, um, or we have other things going on. We have all these different things in our minds and we look at those causes and conditions and try to address them. That helps and sometimes we need to be to be humble, and maybe that can be hard sometimes in a situation where we're afraid or something. Whatever the difficulty is with it, let us come back to the motivation that we started with, that, that we want to liberate all sentient beings, and we want to become Buddhas in order to do that. And in order to become Buddha, in order to liberate all sentient beings, we will then practice these teachings from Shantideva, put them into practice, 
And even when it's difficult, maybe when it's difficult, I think I will be doing this because this will help the practice that's going to lead to liberating all sentient beings. And that's about all I have. So we might stop here a couple minutes early unless anybody has any questions or comments. Anything from these chat, these verses come up for anybody that they want to mention? I think it's hard to see other people as products of causes and conditions because that means we ourselves. So if we say, oh, well, they're not fully in control of their actions by implication, that means neither am I. And that's a kind of an uncomfortable situation to be in. And then I remember Venerable Damcho asked a question at the end of, I think, 61, and she was saying, um, how is, you know, volition upheld if everything is just causes and conditions? It's, you know, with karma, we're, we're taught that our choice matters. And so how to, like, hold both at the same time. You say volition, it's condition. Well, that, well, then isn't it not really volition? It's like I always get into this conundrum of how free will, quote unquote, is possible if everything is just a result of causes and conditions. I had a conversation with a guest that was here once about um, free will as opposed to um, predetermination. And she was saying that because everything is the result of causes and conditions, that everything is predetermined. And so we asked Venerable. And Venerable said that things are not predetermined and we don't really have free will. We have, we have a limited volition, that we, you know, control that we do have and we can use it. But we're not free to do anything we want. You know, and so she she didn't really want to frame it in those two terms. And um, at the first part you mentioned actually about um, if others are not um, under the under if they're under the control. Of causes and conditions, or if they're not a, a self motor what was the term you used? Like, um, if they're not in control of themselves, so then we aren't. So a lot when she went through these, Venerable kept bringing us back to looking at our own mind in order actually to understand the other's minds more easily. Um, because I can't look into your mind. I don't have that ability. But um, we can look at our own minds and look at and think about the causes and conditions and do the investigation there. And then we can infer that other people's minds act similarly. When we, um, this meditation, there's a part in there where it says, now think about another person and what causes and conditions might have um, been in their mind. Somebody asked about that also. I was like, isn't that projection? Well, 
to some extent, it could be, depending on how accurate we, how we don't know how accurate we are at guessing what's going on in someone else's mind. Um, then we're looking at possibly a correct assumption. But when I look at my mind and see that thoughts arise from other thoughts, and then I do know that's going on in others' minds, and that can be a, um, more of an infer inferential understanding than a correct assumption, you know. But to know what thoughts are going on in someone else's mind, that's going to be a correct assumption at best, unless someone has clairvoyance. Anybody else have anything? Okay, I wanted to mention to the people online that tomorrow, being Christmas, we have a tradition of reading this book, Shanti Deva's uh, A Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life, um, out loud in its entirety every Christmas. So if anybody is at home and wants to do something that's not Christmassy, <laughs> like if some Buddhists want an activity to do on Christmas, um, I invite you to do that. And if you could read the whole thing out loud through, that would be great. If you can read part of it, that would be great too. Okay.